So many of you are fascinated by stories about the royal family. And some of you may have seen Andrew on Atwood Unleashed talking about Mountbatten. So today we are going to do a much longer version of that story. And we are also going to touch on some of the other work from Andrew's, do you pronounce it oeuvre? Yes, oeuvre. <laughs> oeuvre. <laughs> I like to call it oeuvre. <laughs> Including the traitor king. We can only go so far with that one, though. And you know who that is. Guy Burgess. So I was just reading a little bit about what you wrote about him. That seems fascinating. James, you'd heard of him, hadn't you? Guy Burgess? The spy. The spy. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge spies, yep. Yeah. And All right, so before we get into Dickie then, who is Dr. Andrew Lowney? Well, I, most of my career has been as a literary agent. That's what the day job is. And I represent about 200 authors. Uh, I specialize in history and biography. But I've done all sorts of uh, books, lots of some celebrity memoir, um, travel, food, wine, some fiction. So that's the day job. And then I, beside that, I try and write books. So I started off, the first book came out in 1992, a book called North American Spies. Then I did Literary Guide to Edinburgh, which is where I'd sort of grown up. Uh, then I did the uh, book on John Buchan, who was the author of The 39 Steps in 1995. And then I kind of slowed down. I had a family and a, a pretty busy job. And so nothing much happened until Guy Burgess in 2015. Uh, but I've been speeding up. So Dickie was 2019. Uh, and now I've got The Traitor King coming out to, to, to 2021. Literary agent representing 200 authors. That must be quite a um, have its challenges. Yes, no, it's busy. It is busy. And particularly with emails, we get more and more submissions. In the old days, yeah. they had to at least write a letter. Now they just press a button. Yeah. So, and it's much, much quicker. You know, people are making decisions. There are many more agents. It's harder in some ways to get published um, because the publishers need higher thresholds, but easier because, of course, people can self publish. So it's changing. And of course, ebooks have, have, and Amazon have, have revolutionized the market. So, what's the longest in terms of years you've represented somebody? Uh, I have people I've represented since I started in 1985. Wow. So, uh, yeah. Good grief. You know, most of my authors are younger than me now, but I, yeah. I've got a couple. I've got a couple in the 90s, and every time the, there's a contract, the editors say, well, if they die, we want our money back. And they've seen out several editors already. <laughs> Do you, um, are you still taking new authors, or are you, you done? No, no, I'm always looking for new authors. We get about 100 submissions a day. 100 and, a day? Um, and I'll take on maybe 12 a year. Wow. And that's got to be from that genre of historical, though. Tends to be now. Um, I mean, I will take other things uh, if it's interesting or different. Yeah. Um, I've just just sold the memoirs of a, a traffic cop. Um, a trafficked cop? Uh, a traffic cop. cop. A traffic cop. A traffic And then another book, the memoirs of a prison art tutor. Um so, yeah, it varies. I, I like doing memoirs as well. I like people's stories. They sound like good guests for this podcast, if you want to put yeah, them yeah. away. Look at the website. <laughs> you take your pick. Yeah. No, no, there's some very interesting people. I mean, I've got one woman you'll love who was brought up by monkeys in the um, what? Colombian jungle. She was oh abandoned goodness. as a child, age six, and brought up by these capuchin monkeys. Uh, and um, no one believed her. We did a National uh, Geographic um, 
uh, <laughs> a sort of documentary on her. She was a New York Times bestseller, sold in about 20 countries. But if you, we tested her by taking her to Monkey World, and she went and talked to the monkeys. She's in her 50s now. She just climbs trees like like an animal. How long was she in them with the monkeys? <laughs> Several years. <laughs> Let us know in the comments if you want the monkey lady on the podcast. I think I know the answer. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Uh, What's her name? Uh, she's called Marina Chapman. Marina Chapman. Yeah, the woman with the girl with no name. It's called. Has she done anything like this before? No. Um, She's got a very good ghostwriter. She's not brilliant at speaking, so, yeah. so maybe the ghostwriter would be better. But I've got another one who uh, it's a book called Today I'm Alice. She's born with multiple personalities. So she's a woman now in her 50s, but she, she'll she'll go into a meeting and then one minute she's like a three-year-old girl. Next minute she's like an 18-year-old sort of thug. Um, Imagine interviewing someone and they're going through the personalities. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, well, I've had publishers who got so freaked out they didn't buy the book. Really? Because she had one of these sessions. So it's like a fast rotation, is it? Into yeah, yeah. She just moves into these between these personalities. So when you meet her, does she go through her personalities? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you just need to learn to talk to her in the personality she's in. Take it seriously. <laughs> I always keep a few children's toys in the office for that reason. <laughs> what a life. All right, so I said Dickie earlier. Some people may not have registered who that is. Can you explain to us who was Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten yeah. and, and how you came to have an interest in that? Well, the book arose out of the Guy Burgess book. The Dickie Mountbatten had been at the same school and, and at Dartmouth just um, after Guy Burgess, sorry, just before. Uh, and I'd read the biography. There's not an official book that was done, which is deadly boring. And I thought, here's a fascinating character, um, and no one has done him and his wife together, and it was a very unusual marriage, one with filled with infidelities, but actually a very loving marriage. And Dickie Mountbatten is Prince Philip's uncle. Uh, he was the last godchild of Queen Victoria, her great-grandson. Uh, and so he's a member of the royal family. His aunt was married to Tsar Nicholas I. He was brought up with the Russian royal family. Uh, and he went uh, into the Navy, followed his father, who was the first Sea Lord, uh, into the Navy. And he uh, eventually became first Sea Lord himself, but he was the last Viceroy of India. Uh, he was the Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia during the war. He was a great socialite uh, and uh, a great mentor to Prince Charles, known as his honorary grandfather. Great mentor in many ways to the Queen, because he, she came to the throne clearly as a very young woman. Very friendly with King George VI. He was the man who actually, in some ways, plotted the marriage of Queen, of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. He brought them together. A great, he was a great sort of dynasty maker. Uh, and um, his best man when he got married was the Duke of Windsor, which is how I got on to uh, King Edward VIII. And then Edwina was the richest heiress in the world when they married in 1922. Her grandfather, a man called um, Casson, was a great banker. Richest heiress in the world. So, yeah. So, and she was a very glamorous figure, a, a beautiful, a very beautiful woman, lots of lovers after he got married. And then it's a sort of book of two halves because she sort of finds her purpose in the Second World War. She takes up charitable work, particularly for Save the Children, uh, and spends the rest of her life going out and, and doing good works. So in some ways, you know, as we get to know Dickie, we become to like him perhaps a bit less. And as we get to know her, uh, we get to like her a bit more. How did they meet? Uh, they met in cows, as one does, on a, uh, uh, during the cows weekend. Um, 
And she was found him a very exotic figure. He, he There's a picture in the book of him climbing the mast, no safety net. He used to water ski to, to between ships in his dinner jacket with his shoes around his neck. Um, he was a character, and she was used to these rather boring aristocrats. And here was this extraordinary, vibrant character. Water skiing with his... <laughs> I never knew that. Good grief. So how come she was... Um, inherited all this wealth. Where did that come from? Well, it came from this grandfather who who was a banker, um, a man called Casson. And then, in fact, uh, her mother died when she was very young. She had a rather tragic upbringing where she was sent off to school when she was young. Mm. She had a rather nasty stepmother. Uh, and that, in some ways, I think, is why she was always looking for this attention from men later. And she always found it much more, much easier, to, a bit like Princess Diana, to bond with children mm. than she did with adults. So... Um, yeah, she she but she and and when she married Dicky, uh, she came into this inheritance or part of it, and there was this great worry that that he was a, a really just looking for, out, out for her money, and they got engaged on a Valentine's Day. Um, she followed him out. He was actually the ADC to the Prince of Wales, future King Edward VIII, going around India in 1922, and um, staying at the, with the Viceroy, and she went and stayed there. That's where they got engaged. But the viceroy's wife was very worried about Dickie. She thought he was a bit of a, bit of a, didn't trust him. And she said to him, to, uh, did Weena's father, I hope, you know, she knows what she's doing. And she's, you know, why doesn't she marry someone with better prospects? Mm. Well, of course, Dickie ended up with some, doing brilliantly. Um, but it was always a very strange marriage because he was uh, almost statistic. He was a great controller of things. When they went on honeymoon, he had to, basically plot the you know which road they would take and where they would stay whereas she wanted to be she was a free spirit she wanted to get away from all that and just have time but they had this really odd honeymoon there were three of them they went out they drove out by car they went and visited his relations to start with which is not a good start to a honeymoon um and they had the chauffeur but dickie loved driving so much that the chauffeur sat in the back and the two of them sat in the front <laughs> did you say he was part of the came from the russian royal family yeah, well, I mean, his uh, aunt had married um, uh, uh, Tsar Nicholas I. Uh, he, in fact, his first sort of, um, I wouldn't say girlfriend, but the first woman he, he, girl he sort of fell in love with was one of the daughters of the Tsar, and he was going to have holidays with them. I mean, he was very much part of the Hess family, uh, German Hess family. So, um, and the, of course, he was a Battenberg. And what happened during the First World War was, of course, everyone had to change their names, all the Germans. So they were going to call them Oldcastle. Didn't sound they thought it sounded a bit like a brewery. So they changed the name to Mount Batten. So, so he was a Hess. Yes, he was a, uh, a Prince of Hess. Prince of Hess. So how was it back then? Did the royals just interbreed within their own? Social structure. They're all interrelated with the European royal families. So um, yeah. and his sister, um, one sister married the King of Greece, who, or, or rather Prince Andrew of Greece, Alice. Uh, another sister, Louise, married the King of Sweden. Um, so, you know, they, that's, they carried on doing it, really. And he was a great matchmaker. So he, as I say, matchmade Prince Philip with, with the Queen. That famous meeting at Dartmouth in 1939, he was the one who basically encouraged um, King George to stop off there. He was the one who made Prince Philip the, 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 the person showing around. And he encouraged that relationship with, with the father. I mean, there's a lot of correspondence on that, but he also invited the two of them together. 
And then he did the same with Prince Charles. He tried to get Prince Charles to marry his granddaughter, Amanda. Mm. So he helped um, encourage the marriage of, of Princess Michael and Prince Michael. So he was a great sort of matchmaker. He's a bit of a fixer. He loved that. And he had this great belief that having given his name to, to Philip, uh, Philip took his name, Mountbatten, he would create this dynasty of Mountbatten's. And of course, there was this great debate. Could Philip, um, would the queen become a Mountbatten or would she stay as a Windsor? And of course, there was that great battle and she, the, the, the rule was that the, the, the descendants would be Windsors, but the others would be called Mountbatten-Windsor, which is what happens now. So was it to kind of prevent wars that they had these all these different countries sending their daughters to marry in the different countries was was that the theory behind it well it was uh, you know up to the sort of certainly up to the first world war yes there were alliances there um but you know clearly after that that was just i think it's just the people they met um uh, and i think the mountbatten family were quite ambitious and um you know, those were, I suppose, good marriages. Um, poor old Princess Alice. I mean, there's been a bit of publicity about her recently. She eventually became a nun, but she was deaf. She could had to sight, sight read in, in different languages. And she had she had psychiatric problems and was actually in a uh, an asylum, a sanatorium for much of Prince Philip's youth. Mm. So he was rather abandoned. And his father then went off with his mistress to Monte Carlo. So if you were a royal daughter back then, were you told you're going to marry this person or was there a courtship ritual? Did you have any choice in the matter? Well, I think a lot of the marriages were encouraged or arranged. Um, and, you know, if we think, for example, of Queen Mary, Princess Mary of Tech, she was due to marry King George V's older brother and he died and therefore she just passed down to the next one. So, um, yeah, I think they just, um, they accepted that that was, that was what was, what happened, which is why they of course had all these lovers. Um, but the marriage I think between Dickie and Edwina was a love match. Uh, it just, the problem was that, you know, he was away serving in the Navy. She got lonely. Uh, she wanted attention. So she began to have these affairs. I found 17 lovers. But um, uh, her um, daughter said that there were, there were some I'd missed. So the hunt goes on for the missing lovers of Edwina. Where did she source these gentlemen from? Just people she met socially. So um, one was a man called Hugh Sefton, who was regarded as the best looking man in Britain, who was an army officer. A lot of them were in the polo set because Mountbatten was a very keen polo player and had a polo team. So she met them at the polo. She had a, a thing for Americans. She liked very rich uh, people. Uh, didn't tend to fall in love with poor people. <laughs> she liked black black men. She had an affair with Paul Robeson, the actor, and Leslie Hutchinson, the singer. Uh, of course, a long affair with Nehru, the Indian leader. So, uh, and they both liked sort of brown-skinned people. So he he had affair. He tended to have affairs with um, uh, young uh, boys from Sri Lanka and Ceylon. Dicky did. Yeah. Oh, and with women as well. So you can see a great subject. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like sort of everyday life in Surrey, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> so was it understood then that while he's away, that she could she was allowed to do these things? Well, he, he was allowed he didn't, to do what he wanted to do. Was it like an open relationship? Well, it became an open relationship. They didn't really, I mean, he was very upset when he discovered that she was having these affairs. How did he discover that? He was told it by, by Prince, the Prince of Wales. Uh, and he was terribly upset. He thought of getting divorced. 
Uh, and she literally one evening came to him. We're in the middle of the night. They had separate bedrooms. And she came to him and they chatted about it. And the next morning they decided that they would uh, ha- go there, you know, have their open marriage. But as long as she didn't scare the horses. So as long as the royal family weren't affected and it didn't jeopardize his naval career. So she had to be discreet. And so she did have her affairs. Um, and then eventually he began to have affairs himself. But she didn't like him having affairs. She was very jealous, which is a bit unfair. So when they, she brought them home, she would be at the, at the, at the sort of um, keyhole looking through, seeing what was going on. Uh, and, and there were a couple of occasions where um, he came on leave expecting to meet um, the girlfriend. And Edwina would befriend them and then take them off somewhere on holiday. And he'd come back and find she they'd gone. <laughs> wow. So what led him then? Actually, I've got a question on what you just said. Containing this information back then was easy, was it? Because there was no internet or anything to keep it secret, was that? Yes, it was very discreet. I mean, and yeah. to be honest, those circles are still very discreet. Mm. Um, I found it very difficult to get information. Mm. A lot of stuff was, was, you know, it's not told. I mean, the great thing is, is, is and this is why I'm very keen to get access to their diaries and letters, yeah. which are closed at the moment because that would clearly reveal a lot more. But um, they did write letters to people, and the, some of those letters are in collections elsewhere. Mm. Uh, but yeah, very difficult. Of course, the press was very deferential, so this stuff wasn't covered, and a lot of the stuff is suppressed. So, for example, she was quoted in several divorce cases, but when you go and look at the divorce papers mm. in, the, in the archives, you find that those cases are missing. Wow. So there's been a bit of a mop-up operation. Um, and certainly, for example, she was sued several times um, by the partners of the people she was having affairs with, but that was sort of kept quiet. And there were uh, one of the, the people who did that for her was Lord Beaverbrook. Mm. Um, but there was a famous case in 1932 where a paper reported her affair with a black man, um, and um, she sued. For, she 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 was told by the royal family, "Look, you need to address this. People are going to believe it," and it was true. But she sued them for libel, and some deal was done. So she didn't get damages, but there was an apology from the newspaper. It was all done very quietly. Nine in the morning, the press were kept out. Uh, but she then went into exile, in effect, and she spent the 1930s traveling with one, one or two of her different boyfriends um, around the world. So she would ride across South America, camp in the desert in the Middle East, uh, she was one of the first people to to to, to travel through the Southeast Asia to, to go down the Chinese the Great China Road. She was an extraordinary um, adventurer as well. Do you think in this internet era then that the royal family can maintain such secrecy? Well, I think you know there are lots of affairs within the royal family, um, uh, and they uh, don't get covered, or their rumours. Um, so, yeah, I think they can. Uh, I mean, there are, for example, exemptions uh, with documents that interview the royal family. Sort of section 37 means they can't be, it, you, can't, you can't talk about it. Um, there is data protection now, even for public figures. So, yeah, stuff is, is certainly kept quiet. And, of course, the circles that they have their affairs and, and do things is, is very tight, and people don't betray those confidences. So, yeah, lots of stuff goes on that we don't know about. Are there any affairs that are rumors of affairs that you've heard of that you can say? Um, well, I better not say. <laughs> Get, I'll be in trouble. But um, but certainly Mountbatten used to lend his country house, Broadlands, to members of the family to bring girlfriends down. 
Wow. Um, so certainly, I mean, Charles, before he's married, so he's perfectly entitled of his girlfriends, would take girlfriends down there to basically have a nice weekend away from the paparazzi and um, get to know them. And we're going to get to his stuff with Charles in a minute then. So when did evidence surface of Dickie's paedophilia? Well, I don't know when other people knew. Um, mm. I discovered it in the course of my research because I found an FBI file that had been opened on him in, in, during the war when he became Supreme Allied Commander. Mm. And someone had, had basically been interviewed about something else and then just said, but by the way, you know the new Supreme Allied Commander likes boys. So they reported that. They kept the files open. And so files were, were, were opened on him and also on her because of her quite left-wing communist views right through the 40s and 50s. Now, you, you can't always trust FBI files because all they do is record what people tell them. But there were so many different people, quite rep reputable people, you know, wives of, for example, the, the, the Viceroy of India was one, giving this information, all pretty consistent. So that's where it came. There were lots of rumors. I mean, over the, over the last 30 years, Private Eye and people have run stories, but without any proof. But what I managed to do was to track down two boys now in their late 50s who were abused by Mountbatten in 1977 as 16-year-olds. Wow. Uh, and they were prepared to talk to me, and we had for legal reasons to disguise their identity. But the good news is they are both about, or certainly one, and I hope the other, are about to be on a television program uh, where they'll talk about this. Wow. Um, and um, so I think that will you know, open things up. But you know, a lot of the files and all that have been closed. Mm. Uh, I requested the, the car logs for, for August 77 when they were abused for Classyborn, which is the house in the west of Ireland that, that he had where this all happened. Mm. And um, the Garda have refused to release those logs, though they admit they have them. They say it's part of the murder inquiries, but the murder, murder did only happen two years later. So that's slightly odd. But you know, time and time again, you find the files have been weeded. Um, a lot of the, um, the very strict, um, rather prescripted um, circumferences to, to, to some of these tribunals. Um, and, and of course, these people are very damaged. They've tried to discredit them with, the, of course, the famous Nick, who turned out to be a fake. Uh, and so as a result of Nick, a lot of people wouldn't believe the genuine ones. Mm. So, um, but I think, you know, they're very um, convincing. I mean, I, I clearly I put my reputation on the line, but the, the facts they gave me all added up. There were things that they knew they couldn't have known unless they'd actually been to Classicborn and indeed uh, knew some of the characters who, for example, worked there. Could you expand on those stories then? Well, I didn't do much because I, 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 you know, it is quite sensational, and I didn't want to press them too much. But there are quotes in the book about the abuse they received, when, you know, the, uh, and 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 what happened. Um, I think one of them, Sean, was was taken there a couple of times, and Mal was taken like four times. But they were part of a bigger ring, uh, a VIP abuse ring operating in the country houses of Ireland. Um, so what? Yeah, no, it's 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 an extraordinary it's an extraordinary story which has been just completely suppressed. So you're you're saying that back in this is the 1970s, was it? This was 70s. There was yeah. a big VIP abuse ring operating in Ireland. Yeah. Does this because I've heard about um, Kinkora? Well, home? it's linked into Kinkora. The boys, kept, one of the boys, wasn't in Kinkora. This was a, a boys' home, a children's home in Belfast, and of course there was very little supervision. There were, of course, no parents showing any interest in them, and these children were, were basically farmed out to these weekends or to these men uh, by 
um, the staff there who were themselves uh, abusers. So it's <gasps> a scandal. And the Kinkora thing, the files still remain closed. Um, the people try very hard to get the stories, but a lot of the boys committed suicide. Mm. So the boy I interviewed, Sean, is one of the few survivors. Uh, and he's a very, uh, as I say, convincing interviewee. He's got a highly intelligent, very good memory, very consistent. Uh, and, um, you know, he's now, he's got a court case going through, and I hope that will, it's been delayed because of COVID, but I hope that will lead to some sort of justice for him. Where's Sean based? Uh, Sean uh, lives in the States now. Does he? Okay. Oh, I may have had a communication with him, actually, someone in the States, King Cora. Yeah, yeah, you will, yeah, you might may have well done Yeah, this. yeah. Um, so my question was going to be that, you know, how did he access these boys? But you're saying that they were supplied to him by this ring. Yeah. So he would have known then that, that, that he, you know, I'm, I'm getting these through a ring, would he have known? Oh, yes, they all, they all I mean, provide boys for each other. They pass them around. Um, there was uh, rumors that they came from a school called Portora, which was a sort of like the Eton of, of, of Northern Ireland. Um, but you know, some of these people, um, you know, they would invite, uh, some of it was not, uh, 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 was sort of above board. They would just invite lots of young men to parties and what happened was up to, to, to the people who were there. But I think the, the problem with Kinkora was he was vulnerable children who were, um, had no choice in the matter. Definitely. Now, you know, I can understand to an extent your friends and the people you work with covering up, you're having an affair with somebody. But if you're abusing a minor, I mean, how would he insulate himself from people trying to stop him from doing that or exposing it? Because it's a different level. Well, it was a very tight ring. I mean, it was sort of yeah. mutually assured destruction if anything happened. Mm. So, uh, but there was extraordinary discretion. I mean, he was bisexual. He had affairs all through his life with men. Mm. Um, it was, after all, a criminal offense until the 1960s. It was not allowed- To be the, gay? Yeah. You were sent yeah. to prison if, if yeah. you were caught. Um, and if, you know, in the, in the services, you were thrown out until 2000. Uh, and, but people knew about it. So, for example, one of the people I found interviewed was a man called Ron Perks, who was a chauffeur in 1948 when he went um, to uh, Malta as the commander of the first cruiser squadron. Uh, and Ron Perks said, told me, and he was again a reputable witness, that he was briefed to find out where the male brothel was in Malta because uh, Matt Batten would want to be taken there. Wow. So, I mean, that was his commanding officer passing that on to Ron Perks. But in the Navy, everyone kept quiet. A lot of the abuse went on with, or affairs went on with junior officers in the Navy, of course, whose careers would have been uh, in trouble if they'd said anything. Um, but, you know, they, they, they were very discreet. And this was what I found with, with Guy Burgess. I mean, one of the reasons the Russians recruited him as a spy was that he was gay. He was part of a homosexual network which had to operate undercover. And therefore, he made a good spy. They were, he could be in some ways blackmailed uh, by them or exposed. But at the same time, um, there was an extraordinary bond between uh, this gay community because of the risks that they ran and they had to trust people um, and had to be careful. Yeah, we interviewed the conspiracy researcher, David Icke, and he said there are people in high places 
on purpose because of their blackmail ability because they've got such you know deviant tendencies so do you agree with that then well i think you know now you know no one cares what who se people's sexuality is so there isn't the scope for blackmail uh, and i, I well, i'm not on about the, um the sexuality i'm on about sexual deviance and pedophilia like but you know well you know i think you know i'm always amazed when they arrest you know you know uh, M well mps you know schoolmasters all sorts of people policemen that you would you know appear very law abiding and and um not through people who'd be involved in this and then they find that there's this double life and i suppose <laughs> the theme of, of of all my books is is these people with double lives yeah. the spies the the the, the pedophile um, even John Buck and I, the book was called The Presbyterian Cavalier. And though, I mean, he was very upright Scots Presbyterian, yeah. there was a, a cavalier aspect to him. He was a romantic and, um, and, and a much more, less severe figure than people thought. So I think that's what I'm interested in, people who have hidden lives. And I think we all, in some ways, have a series of lives and we keep some quieter, shall we say, than others. Yeah. Well, I certainly did with the ecstasy and the rave scene in Arizona <laughs> until the SWAT team came. Um, so we've got a documentary coming out about Jimmy Savile. It's like four hours long. And there was like a peak of him offending. Was there a peak of Dickie engaging in pedophilia or was that spread out throughout his years? Well, it's very difficult to get the evidence. Um, there's one man I quote called Norman Neald, who, who was his chauffeur during the Second World War and says that he, um, but he's dead now, so it's very difficult to, to, to get the proof, but he mm. says that he would take him, uh, drive children to him in Hampshire um, uh, and who were abused. So that was this was happening during the war, and then, of course, the evidence I've got is from 1977. So suggests that it went on throughout the period, but those are the two only two examples I've got. But, you know, the FBI report is from, from, from the 1944 so I think certainly from from the from the war onwards, mm. and uh, I think one of the um, rumors about the lack of security when he died was that he didn't want security. He didn't want the constrictions of bodyguards following him mm. because, of course, it slightly um, affected what he could do. Mm. That makes complete sense. Now with Savile, we've interviewed so many different guests as to how he got away with it for so long. I imagine it's the same factors, the connections, the power, the prestige with Dickie that enabled him not to be held to account for paedophilia. Well, you know, I think uh, people, clearly people did know um, uh, and they turned a blind eye for whatever reason. Um, uh, I think he may have been lucky. He was discreet. Um, you know, these things are not, people say, well, why wasn't, you know, why didn't people find out about it? Well, by its very nature, these are very private things and um, it's not something you broadcast. So, um, uh, but yeah, there must be people, there must be security people who knew what was going on, for example. Um, it, the, you know, the people who trafficked the boys clearly knew what was going on. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that no one really broke rank and said anything. Uh, and it was all sort of hushed up. I mean, there's a story that um, that Nigel West, the spy writer, tells of him when he was working in television, that there was an obituary program being made on Mountbatten, uh, and he admitted to his bisexuality on the program. And the, the program basically was, was, was shut down. It never appeared. 
uh, and I looked for the transcription. Normally, there's a transcript to these programs. There's nothing in in the archives. It's it's just been completely killed. So I think possibly he he was much more open. I mean, uh, again, when I went and talked to people, everyone in the gay community of that era knew about it. Um, and in fact, I interviewed a man who's still alive, a man now in his seventies, uh, who was then in his twenties, who had a long affair with Mountbatten. Um, so and 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 it was sort of known in the gay scene. So with the royal family being so media savvy, do you think the Queen would have had a word with him about this? Who knows? Who knows what goes on? I mean, clearly anything to to avoid any bad publicity. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure there was a word, but he was a man who sort of did his own thing, um, and you know, I think probably people cleared up behind him and just kept things quiet. Um, he was very good at curating his own reputation. I mean, he did that after India. He had tame biographers write books about it. Um, he suppressed or tried to suppress and make life difficult for people who were critical of him. Uh, there were um, not just official biographies of him and Edwina, but shall we say, um, books that they cooperated with without it appearing that they cooperated. <laughs> um, and they made very, you know, the fact that they control access to a lot of the Mountbatten archives, so a lot, a lot of them are still private, um, means that only people that they can trust are allowed access. Anyone who may be independent scholar, who may just actually put down the truth, is 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 kept away. So what was his relationship like with the Queen? Well, I mean, people. Some some people say it was very avuncular. I mean, he was um, over twenty years older than her, but you know, she'd known him as a child uh, throughout her life. Um, I think she trusted him. I mean, he'd been had very senior posts. I mean, before she became queen, I mean, he'd been viceroy of India. He'd he'd commanded troops in war. He'd you know uh, was someone who had knew about statecraft. So I think she would have listened to him, but she, she I think, began as she got more confident and, and had more advisors. I suspect listened, but didn't always follow his his advice. Um, but he's, you know, I, I, I think he had the best intentions. Um, well, he pushed himself first forward, but, but then helped the royal family. Um, but who knows? I mean, there's stories of him elbowing out the little children on the balcony so he could be at the front. Um, <laughs> So he was quite a pushy character. Yeah, it comes across like that in The Crown, as a bit of a swashbuckler. Yeah, I think that's probably very fair. I think <laughs> Charles Dance was, was very, you know, looked absolutely the part. Yeah. You know, he was an operator. Um, someone said to him, a, a general called Templar, said that if he swallowed a, um, a nail, it would come out. He was so crooked, it would come out like a corkscrew. <laughs> so he was 20 years older than the Queen. And he's this authority figure, you know, he's, he's had all these achievements. It would be hard for her to tell someone off like that, wouldn't it? Well, it is difficult, exactly. He he did his own thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was quite difficult to control him. Um, you know, his own generation were the Duke of Windsor and, 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 and King George VI, but King George VI, of course, died in 52. Um, the Queen Mother never really liked him. She thought he was a bit... Bit, bit of a spiv. So, yeah, there wasn't anyone who, who was going to control him. Uh, and there is a, a famous episode in 1968 when the so-called 1968 coup, when the um, uh, Harold Wilson was very unpopular, there was industrial unrest, economic problems, and various people came together and went to, to Mountbatten and said, we need this national figure, we need a national government of all the parties and people from outside government, I mean, people perhaps from the army, 
uh, and um, will you lead us? Um, so, I mean, in some ways, treachery. And the line was that, you know, he, these people came to him and he said, get lost. This is, this is rank treachery. But actually, I discovered that he listened to them and had several meetings. He was quite intrigued. <laughs> and he put, up, he put up his own candidates to have been this. So, I mean, he was a man who, who certainly had a great regard for his own abilities. What was his relationship like with Prince Charles? Well, Prince Charles, this is the grandfather he never had. And um, Philip didn't really have the time or perhaps the, the temperament to really understand a much more sensitive son. Mountbatten only had daughters. This was the son he never had. He had time. He retired in 1965 from the Navy. So just the sort of time when Charles was, was forging his career, he was the one who encouraged him to go into the Navy who um, helped plot the route to, through Cambridge, for example. Uh, Charles used to go and stay with him at Broadlands when he was based down at Portsmouth. Uh, and he was someone who, who at time would listen to him. And the stories are told that where Prince Philip would give Charles a rather useful educational toy, Mountbatten would give him something rather fun. And when, Matt, when Charles graduated from Dartmouth and there was no member of his family to see him graduate, Mountbatten made the point of going representing the family oh, wow. so he was he was a very important figure i mean charles was absolutely devastated when he died uh and one of the arguments is if Mountbatten had lived he probably would have advised him against uh princess diana really? um but who knows you know but uh, the advice that Mountbatten tended to give and the, and the one he followed was was basically you know uh, have as many affairs as you want but just find someone sensible to marry uh, and that's sort of, in some ways, <laughs> what Charles was doing. <laughs> and was an understanding that Charles could have affairs with people from a certain class, was that how it was done? Well, I think, you know, inevitably, they, those are the people they meet, those are the people they trust. So that's going to be inevitable that, 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 that been, the book I'm doing on the King Edward VIII, he had numerous affairs with people from all over. I mean, not necessarily from his background, um, because he went on these world tours and uh, he would meet people at events, uh, um, often from quite a modest background and, and um, often have illegitimate children with them. Um, so I, I think it depends on the character. Um, Edward VIII, you know, wasn't too discriminating. Um, others perhaps might be more. So what about Camilla then? Did Dickie play a role in that at all? Um, I, I don't know what the role was there. Um, I mean, you know, what we know is that, that Charles didn't get his act together with Camilla and didn't um, propose, and then she got tired and went and married Andrew Parker Bowles. I mean, the problem was Charles was posted away with the Navy it's so often, and of course the moment when she got engaged, he was away. But I'm sure that uh, uh, that Dickie would have been a confidant and would have uh, given him support uh, after he discovered that she'd married. So you're saying if he wasn't away, he could have just been with Camilla and lived happily ever after, possibly? I think he was a bit indecisive. And I mean, of course, there was still this rather old-fashioned view that, that you couldn't have a woman with a so-called past. They had to be these virgins. Uh, and that's how he ended up with Diana. I mean, that wouldn't happen now. But I think still in the 1980s, there was still this sense that, you know, you couldn't just marry a, a girl who, you know, lived with people before or had boyfriends. And, and how did they know if the woman was a virgin? 
well, I think they just took soundings and you've discovered <laughs> if they'd been around. Um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe they did tests, who knows? <laughs> so you Diana have, had to go through that then, did she? Well, Diana was so young and I think, yes, was seen as such a sort of uh, virginal creature that it was probably pretty safe. I mean, she'd never really done anything. Yeah. Was Dickie still around? And what year did Dickie die? Well, Dickie died in August 79. So it was just before this all happened, really. Ah, okay. So what was Dickie's relationship like with Philip? Well, I mean, he brought help bring up Philip because uh, his, Philip's mother and father were one in this in the in the psychiatric hospital and one with the mistress. So Philip, as a child, was in the school holidays, was passed around his grandmother, um, Dickie's mum, Dickie's brother George, but George died um, uh, very young in the nineteen thirties. So Philip, uh, as a result, Mountbatten did more. You know, would have Philip there more often. Uh, and he became quite a, you know, a mentor to him again. I mean, he was the one who encouraged him to get naturalized again, to go into the Navy. Uh, he got him to take his name. Uh, Batten actually, Philip lived uh, in their home in London for a time. Uh, he was able to bring his girlfriends during the war down to Broadlands. So um, it was close, but I think he, you know, Philip wanted to be his own man. He found Batten a little controlling. Mm -hmm. And so there was always a bit of a tension there. Uh, and uh, the joke was that uh, they were both admirals and therefore they had to salute each other. <laughs> and the joke was only one of them meant it. And uh, <laughs> um, while Dickie was philandering then, was Philip having affairs? Well, you know, we'll see when biographies come out, but there's certainly lots of rumors of, of him being very attractive to women. Um, he certainly, you know, had lots of girlfriends before he married the Queen. Um, what the nature of his relationship was with people after he got married, um, who knows? But um, there's certainly lots of stories. So you said in his later years he had more time on his hands. Other than spending it with Prince Charles, what else did he do in his later years? Well, he was very active. He still was um, uh, um, involved with lots of charities. Uh, he um, sat on committees and, 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 and things. He was in charge, for example, when George Blake escaped the investigation into prisons. Uh, at one point, he was going to be sent to Rhodesia to help with, with the situation there. Um, he, he was a very active public figure. I mean, he was always out. He needed to be occupied. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, he, he carried on. He clearly didn't have his naval career, but he, uh, had lots of interests. He was very keen on shooting. I mean, um, so he led a pretty full full life right up to the end. So James has got a question about Indian independence, don't you? Yeah, so um, when he was Viceroy of India, wasn't he quite a brutal leader? And uh, he's not very well regarded over there, is he? Well, I think there's very, there are very um, divided views about him. Uh, he was sent to India in 1947 to bring independence as quickly as possible. Uh, the, 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 they'd been promised independence for many years and they hadn't got it. Um, they, there was The communal violence was rising. The British uh, ability to hold on to power was diminishing. People wanted to be demobbed end of the war, after the end of the war. The, the, the Indian civil service was being run down. Uh, the Indians were clamoring, saying, you know, we want our freedom. 
So someone had to go and get, and also it was costing money. So they wanted somebody who would go and do it quickly. And perhaps Dickie did it too quickly, but I, I don't think he had much choice. I mean, from what I've read, you know, if he hadn't given independence, which was brought forward from, from 1940, June 48 through to August 47, I think there would have been communal vi violence uh, and there would be no country to give away. So he did the best he could in the circumstances. But of course, the problem was that they couldn't agree on a united Ireland, united India. And so you had um, Jinnah, who was determined to have his own separate homeland, Muslim homeland, Pakistan. And so everything had to be divided up, uh, you know, the Indian army and the lot. And I think people, and this is, I think the blame falls not so much on Mountbatten, but on the Indian leaders themselves. Didn't really. They didn't want the British to be involved. The British didn't want to have casualties sorting out what they saw was an Indian problem, and so um, the division. Uh, there, there was. It was rather dishonest. They they had their independence ceremony in August, and then the next day they announced what the boundaries were and the various bits that were being partitioned, and of course it was mass panic, um, and so trains were hurtling because they thought they'd be, they would be discriminated against. Trains were hurtling between these different things, one lot filled with Muslims, one filled with Hindus, and they were sitting targets. And um, the, the, the violence was much more extreme than people thought. Probably a million people may have been killed. Wow. Um, and the irony is that there were troops there, but they weren't allowed to be called in. And of course, the loyalty of the, 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 a lot of the troops was a bit suspect. So it was a tragedy what happened. Um, but in some ways, Mountbatten's finest hour and certainly Edwina's finest hour was the way that they stayed on after independence through till 48. He stayed as the governor, first governor general of India um, to try and, in a sense, um, um, help with the restoration of, of the infrastructure. And, uh, for example, Edwina made sure that there was proper medical treatment and, and the people trained up. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the great debates about, you know, could it have been different? Um, which I deal with you know, in a couple of chapters in the book. And of course, the other great controversy in his life is the raid on Dieppe in August 1942. This was meant to be a trial run for D-Day. Uh, and uh, I think the problem there, though Mountbatten was ostensibly in, ch in charge, was that too many people had been involved in planning it and there was no obvious chain of command. They were, and then things got changed at the last minute. So it was cancelled. And then because they were worried it had been blown. And then Mountbatten decided to mount it again. He thought it'd be a double bluff. But the Germans, were, of course, were prepared. Mm -hmm. And the Navy didn't want to lose um, uh, battleships, so they didn't give enough cover. The Air Force didn't want to lose planes. Um, there were inexperienced Canadian troops who were there for political reasons. Um, the one lot that were landing were intercepted, uh, and therefore the whole timing went out. There were problems with the tanks landing on the beach that they got stuck in the sand. So the whole thing was a disaster. About a thousand people were, were killed or, or, or taken prisoner or wounded. Uh, but he took the rap for that. And the, again, the, the criticism was that he'd acted um, too quickly. He was impatient uh, and hadn't done his planning. But, you know, there were other people again involved, like Indian independence. I mean, you know, it wasn't just him. Did he meet Gandhi? Yes, he was very friendly with Gandhi. There's a famous picture with Gandhi putting his arm around uh, um, Edwina's shoulder. <laughs> Gandhi loved them. And I mean, the job when Mountbatten went out there was to bring on side the Indian leaders. And he did that with Gandhi, who didn't have political power, but he had a lot of um, uh, support and trust and respect. 
but he and he did it clearly with Nehru. They got, got very friendly, uh, particularly Edwina. But but the problem was Jinnah was this very ascetic figure, and he was very distrustful of the British, and and a very uh, severe, uh, very stiff figure. And that relationship never really took off, and that of course meant that that it. it you know, there were problems. And, you know, Pakistan still feels this day, this is the tension that you've talked about, that they were betrayed by Mountbatten, who wasn't totally impartial. Uh, and he showed preference to the Hindus, particularly in, for example, headwaters and things like that, which, of course, are very important. So when he died then, where was he? Was that in Ireland? Yes, it was the last day of his holiday. Every August he would go off to the west of Ireland to this house, Classyborn, and um, bring his family. Now, um, he'd always had police protection when he went. There'd been threats over the years. The previous year, they'd, in fact, um, they discovered someone had tried to, 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 to lift, um, to put a bomb on his boat. Uh, and so things was becoming quite serious. 79, of course, was the year that Airy Neve was assassinated. There'd been several attempts. Uh, and he, the royal family were not meant to go to, to, to Northern Ireland or indeed Southern Ireland because of the threat. But Mountbatten ignored that. And the police protection people said to him, you know, you shouldn't go this year. And he said, um, the Irish love me. And, and the police come and said, well, not all of them. And that's what happened. And then the, the, the great sort of extraordinary question here, which has never been answered, is his security, rather than being increased because of the threat, was actually reduced. So one of the people I interviewed was a man called Graham Yule, who was a military policeman who had done a security audit. He was, in effect, his bodyguard. And he had said that there'd been a sighting of an IRA um, vehicle in the village. Um, he noticed that there was no protection of the boat, so therefore people could put bombs on it. Uh, and um, he, he was just aware that, the, 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 you know, the, there were vulnerabilities in his security. And instead of the security being improved, when he passed in his report, which was in July 79, he was posted to Hong Kong uh, and basically shut up. So, um, you know, it's very strange. Why was the security reduced at a time of increased threat? Was this a cock-up or was this deliberate that it suited some people's purposes for him to be killed? Who do you suspect those people would have been? Well, who knows? Um, the IRA, you know, the people who killed him and took responsibility were the provisional IRA. Um, two people were charged. One went to prison and was let out under the Good Friday Agreement, a man called Tom, uh, uh, Thomas McMahon, who was a bomb maker trained in, in Libya. Uh, the other man called Francis McGurl was acquitted on lack of evidence, but he um, was actually died in a mysterious tra tractor accident which people suggest the SAS were behind. But the other six were still, are still running around, or are still around. Um, but the extraordinary thing is that the two people who were charged were actually picked up at a roadblock before the bomb was detonated. Now, that may have been ch chance they were acting suspiciously, or there may be something else going on there. Um, but, you know, they were convicted on forensic evidence. They had samples of, of paint from the boat on their hands. Um, but that was the only thing, really. Um, uh, but it was enough to convict one of them. So there are a lot of, a lot of big questions still around the, the murder and what went on. A lot of the papers still remain closed. I mean, one of the great ironies is that Mountbatten was in favor of United Ireland, that the IRA were actually killing the wrong man. 
Um, and the other thing is, of course, it was a complete own goal because as a result of that, there was mo more cross-border cooperation. The American support dried up because, of course, you know, teenagers and old people had been killed. Uh, and this, you know, so it was, a, it was a strange thing for the IRA to do. But, you know, I talk in the book, their theories that British intelligence was behind it, which I don't give any credence to, that the CIA were behind it. That was Powell's theory. Um, but, you know, the, because we don't have so little information, uh, it's easy for people to speculate and make some wild, uh, wild um, um, guesses what really happened. Can you take us through the day of his death? Well, it was a sunny day, last day of the holiday. They were going off to lift lobster pots in the boat. Uh, he went out with um, uh, two of his, his grandchildren, the children of his elder daughter, and a boy from Portora who was the boat boy, together with his son-in-law and his son-in-law's mother. Uh, other members of the family, people like India Hicks, who's quite well known, stayed at home, didn't want to go out. Uh, and the, the, the people who were controlling the bomb, it was a remote control device, which had been planted probably the night before, um, watched them steam out of the harbour to, to lift the lobster pots and then just press the bomb. And, and the thing completely disintegrated. Matt Batten was cut in half. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it was an extraordinary atrocity. Um, and the people who were guarding him, the guarder, were sitting completely helpless on the cliff watching this happen. Wow. So what was the aftermath of that then? Well, as I said, there was more cross cross border cooperation. I mean, there were there were calls for capital punishment to be brought back. Uh, there was clearly a lot of uh, criticism of the Irish government, um, who were responsible for security. Uh, um, a lot of those discussions are still closed in the papers, so we don't know quite what happened. But you know, you had this huge funeral in second almost to Winston Churchill, uh, and. Um, you know, this was the, you know, in some ways he represented the 20th century, born in 1900, you know, gone through the First World War, Second World War. Uh, he'd been right at the top in the, in the Ministry of Defense. He ended up as Chief of Defense Staff dealing with, for example, the nuclear threat. Uh, you know, it was an extraordinary life from, from, you know, the alliances of the pre-World War I period with the Russian royal family through to the time of Mrs. Thatcher. So he went out as a hero then because people didn't know about his paedophilia. No, uh, and I don't think anyone knew about the paedophilia until my book came out. You really? Know, in terms of the public. What year was that? Well, my book came out two years ago. Only two years ago? So, I mean, there were rumors in private, I said it, but, but there was no evidence. It was all rumors that were dismissed. So these FBI files and this, these interviews with the two boys was what really put the nail in his coffin. Good grief. Well done, you. Do you think that perhaps in Ireland people knew and that may have motivated him to be killed as well? There could have, it could have, could have been a Well, role. that's one of the theories. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that people were aware. Um, uh, there are some stories that the IRA did it not because of his political position, symbolic position, but because of the, 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 the paedophilia. Um, there's some suggestion that you know, he was becoming an embarrassment and this was a, an easy way of dealing with that. Um, but, you know, we just don't know. Those are, that's just, it's been wild speculation. So if you broke this two years ago then, haven't you had some blowback? Well, the Buckingham Palace refused to comment. Um, you know, I've had, uh, you know, some, I, you know, when I give, give talks, people say, how dare you, you know, treat a hero of our time like this? And I say, well, what about the poor victims? Um, 
So uh, some people didn't believe it. I mean, when the book first came out, the serial for one of the papers was cancelled. They couldn't believe that this or didn't want these stories told. Uh, and so to their credit, the Sunday Times ran it as a front page story. Uh, and after that, every paper ran it. It went round the world uh, and the book went into the top 10. Good, good job. Well, it's like, you know, if someone had said something about Savile um, early on or all these other people who you would never imagine what they'd done, but now it's come out that they've done and some have gone to prison some of them haven't. It just seems so prevalent, doesn't it, that these public figures and these double lives and it, people say this person can't be doing this like bill clinton can't be with epstein prince andrew can't be with epstein doing these things but it's, it's is it human nature well i mean i think the prince andrew story is the next big scandal you know i mean it's quite clear from from the way he's behaved that he has something to hide um i mean i think you know it's clear epstein was procuring uh, for all sorts of people uh, and there's some suggestion, a bit like the Kinkora, it was linked into intelligence, that this was a way, of course, of keeping, uh, um, having people, having something compromising on people. Um, so, you know, who knows, but why are all these documents suppressed? Why are people not prepared to, 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 to appear? Why are people lying, um, saying they, you know, haven't met people when it's clear they have met people? So I think uh, absolutely they're all interconnected, but I think there's a very strong sense of self-entitlement with a lot of these people, that they're above the law, that they'll be protected, uh, and they'll be able to brazen it out. They'll hide behind all sorts of things, data protection or whatever. Um, and, you know, they think they can get away with it. You know, why do, you know, well-known figures in the public uh, life go shoplifting? They don't need the thing. It's it's just the frisson. It's, they think they can get away with it, or it's a split-second thing. And a lot of these people have, you know, clearly their own problems and, um, you know, they become addictive to, to a particular lifestyle and way of behaving. And if you get away with it, you, you get away with it until you're caught. So I understand the theories revolving around the role of intelligence in the Epstein case. What was the role of intelligence in Concora? Well, it was um, some of the people who were there were... Um, um, senior members of the UDF or, or, or elsewhere. And it was a way, again, of compromising them, having something on them, being able to perhaps run them or blackmail them. So they let these things happen. It's a bit like having Salon Kitty with the Germans in the Second World War. You know, you, 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 if people, you have something on people, then you can control them. Uh, and I think that's that's what happened. Uh, and, you know, various people, army officers who are aware of what were going on, um, uh, Colin Wallace and Brian Gemmell and, and others have been have come forward and talked and people have tried to discredit them. But I mean, my experience with these people is they are very honourable uh, uh, men who who have you know raised you know raised their head above the parapet. I think that the extraordinary thing is that more people haven't come forward knowing what went on. They're scared, presumably because of their pensions, or that they'll be you know in trouble somehow. But you know, given so many people must know of all these things. How do they remain secret for so long is, is one of the great mysteries. Yeah, and people are constantly saying, how did Epstein get away with this for so many years? And how is it enabled? 
Well, it comes back to, to Burgess, you know, and this is again one of the themes of my books. It's the cover up is often worse than the initial thing. And with Burgess, people knew he was a communist and they knew he, a lot of people knew he was a spy and that he was a drunk uh, and he really shouldn't be employed by the Foreign Office. But they turned a blind eye. He was one of them. Uh, he'd been to Eton and um, Cambridge and he couldn't possibly, we don't betray our. Um, you know, it, it's like a family. This was the view in the fa foreign office. We're a family and we don't betray family. You know, it's the mafia. Um, and, and there's a story of him coming down one day at one of the conferences wearing lipstick. Uh, and the someone saying to the ambassador, isn't this a little peculiar for a diplomat? And he said, we tolerate eccentricity. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, and, you know, the extraordinary thing about the, about the, the Cambridge spy ring is that they, none of them really were ever charged uh, or caught. If you think that the first two, McLean and um, Burgess, escaped, I think they were allowed to escape. Um, I've got stories in my book of people, um, they, they, what happened was in May 1951, they caught a boat across to, to France uh, and, and then disappeared. They were being, they, you know, the, 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 the authorities were moving in on them. But, you know, an MI5 officer reported them at Southampton getting on the boat. It had been very easy to, to, to get police to pick them up the other end. They didn't. Uh, and they didn't say anything for at least a week. So, of course, by then they were behind the Iron Curtain. Philby, again, under suspicion, not followed. So in Beirut in, in January 63, he just was whisked by, out by the Russians. Blunt, number four, was, was, was basically given a pardon. And allowed to continue, and John Cancross, number five, was allowed to retire to, to France, and nothing was done. Um, so it's it's whereas George Blake, who didn't go to to public school, he got sixty six years for what he did. So this honey trap and sexual blackmail stuff's been going on for decades, then has it? Well, it's 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 part of these honey traps are clearly part of the intelligence uh, where they operate. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's how the Russians operated. Anyone who in Russia, you know, found a woman at a bar chatting to them, it, it was not because they were attractive, it was because they were being, you know, picked up um, by the intelligence services. And of course, they were camera, they would then be shown pictures. I mean, the famous story of the French ambassador shown pictures of him in flagrante said, those are lovely. I'd love them for my Christmas card this year. <laughs> how were these Cambridge spies recruited? They were recruited by the Russians in the 1930s. The Russians decided that they would have this long-term penetration of the British establishment by recruiting people from the major universities, mainly at Oxford and Cambridge, but also, for example, London and um, Birmingham, which was a center for uh, scientific research, and catch people who were high flyers, who were going into the foreign office or into journalism, um, and basically put them there as long-term moles and then activate them. And that's what they did very successfully. And we talk about the Cambridge Five, but actually I think we should be talking about the Cambridge 50. We know of, of, of others uh, less famous because of course they recruited other people, but we know plenty of other people um, uh, like, for example, a man called Michael Strait, who's the American part of the ring. There was an Oxford side of the ring um, that, that just had never been caught. Those were just the ones got discovered. And what happened was the Russians were very scrupulous about recording them in a, in a book by, by number. And though, for example, McLean and Burgess were recruited only a few weeks apart, there's quite a big gap in, their number, in the numbers they've been given. So we, we know that there were many more um, recruited. Uh, 
And, you know, who knows what damage they did. Was it the death penalty for this kind of activity? Absolutely. Absolutely. Didn't a couple in America get executed? Well, there was a ring. It clearly was happening in America. And um, the only two that were executed were Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were part of a, a, a group, an atomic spy group. Uh, and it's tr- in some ways, it's extraordinary because Ethel Rosenberg, I mean, they left young children, were orphaned as a result of this. Ethel Rosenberg was, a, 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 shall we say, a participant, but not a, a, an active participant. Her husband was the recruiter and the very active one. But other people in the, in the, in the, um, uh, the ring, for example, the brother-in-law, uh, the brother of uh, Ethel um, Rosenberg, David Greengrass, uh, basically did a plea bargain and got a, a, a reduced sentence. And he only died a few years ago, came out of prison after um, a short time. So um, it was a very funny way, you know, uh, it was not consistent. But of course, there was huge paranoia with the Cold War then. There was a sense that we needed to to, to, to make an example of people, to show the Russians that we took this seriously, and people who might be tempted to spy. And poor old Ethel Rosenberg, I think, was one of the people caught in the middle. Um, surely we were doing the same to them. I mean, to the Russia. Well, we didn't. We did pick up a few spies. Um, uh, we had defectors who came. I mean, of which, of course, the most famous was during the Cuban Missile Crisis was Benkovsky, and then more recently Gordievsky. Um, but we didn't execute spies. I mean, we we often did spy swaps. Uh, and one of the things you do with spies is you don't always pick them up like policemen. You let them run to see who they'll take you to. Um, and carry on the investigation. What you want to do is to find out the networks. Uh, there's no point, and that's why the expulsions are sometimes a bit counterproductive, because you you get rid of the ones that you're aware of, and then they send new ones that you don't know. So you've got to start all over again. Do you think that Russia will ever use Edward Snowden as capital in a spy swap? Well... Uh, I mean, they will deny he's a he's a Russian spy, but I think it's pretty clear that he certainly um, is not the innocent whistleblower that people imagine. But um, who knows? You know, um, Putin is uh, not always very logical about what he does. Um, but we have done lots of spy swaps. I mean, the the uh, chap killed in Salisbury um, was part of a spy swap. Uh, and um, we gave back various people they wanted, and we got him. But the great thing is, what's the point of a spy swap if they come after you and kill you on a park bench? I mean, you know, that doesn't <laughs> seem a very fair swap. Do you know anything about the spying activity of Robert Maxwell? Well, there are lots of stories about Maxwell. He clearly had a lot of support from the Soviets uh, in setting up Pergamon to start with, uh, in suggestions he also worked for Mossad. Uh, and, you know, lots of stories about whether, you know, he died by accident, falling off the boat, whether he was assassinated, whether he committed suicide. Um, again, we'll never really know, um, I suspect. What's your gut telling you about his demise? I think it was probably um, uh, uh, a split-second decision, whether it was suicide or an accident. He was, you know, just toppled over a bit sleepy. Um I don't think he was assassinated. But, you know, there are books that say that. Um, yeah, I've read The Assassination of Robert Maxwell. Yeah. It's quite quite compelling. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there's quite a lot of arguments. Gordon, Gordon yeah. Thomas, I think, isn't yeah. it? So, um, who knows? I mean, there's. I think the thing is, with history, we, we think we know what happened in the past, but we only have a very partial picture. 
It's just words, isn't it? So what happens to Guy Burgess in the end? Well, Burgess fled in May 1951 to Russia and had a pretty terrible time there. It's it's the pitch you get in Alan Bennett's play in Englishman Abroad. Um, he was lonely. He was, um, I mean, eventually people did, he was kept out in, in, in Samara, an uh, isolation for several years, not allowed to see people. Eventually, after Stalin's death in '53, he came to Moscow. He had a, a, a sort of part-time job with the Russian intelligence services. People could come and see him, but he was under curfew. Uh, he was uh, under surveillance. He had uh, was allowed to have a boyfriend who was, in fact, one of the people spying on him. Who literally vanished the day that Burgess died, and Burgess died at the age of 52 from basically drinking too much, mm. uh, and. Um, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think no one had really done a book on Burgess before my book, a proper book, because he died. He was one of the first, the first to die. He he hadn't left any papers. There were very few people who remembered him, mm. uh, and so it was quite a difficult um, book to research. Mm. Can imagine. All right, the traitor king. Then, what can we talk about about him? Well, the book is called The Scandalous Exile of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and the book starts in 1936 after the abdication, with the abdication speech. Almost all the books on, on the Duke of Windsor are about the abdication or go up to the abdication. And the period, which is another 35 years of his life, are, are covered in a matter of pages. But the extraordinary thing is that in some ways the second part of his life was much more interesting than the first part. Um, so he goes off... Um, uh, well, the suspicions about his loyalties. He goes off and has a tour uh, of, of Nazi Germany where he meets Hitler uh, in 1937. Uh, there's great worry in the royal family. He's going to upstage his younger brother because he's more charismatic. Um, he's then uh, basically exiled into France. He has a job with attached to the French army, and there's some suggestion he betrayed uh, secrets there, which the German, through German sympathizers that he mixed with. He then... Um, uh, tries to come out through Spain and Lisbon, and there's a German plot called Operation Willie to try and recruit him as a sort of British petta, which he's quite tempted by. Uh, and eventually, the British, who are, who are basically listening in on all this, uh, get him out by appointing him governor of the Bahamas. There are various financial scandals in the Bahamas. He's involved in the cover up of a murder of Harry Oakes. Um, he then tries to get a job. Uh, as an ambassador, no one wants to touch him. He's seen as a traitor. He's seen as as someone who's just um, not a safe pair of hands. And he then spends his life mixing with very dubious figures, dabbling in the black market, um, and with some very, I say, dubious right wing figures. Um, basically, a little bit Harry and Meghan suing people, taking advantage of their, um, uh, the fact that they're, 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 they're royals uh, to try and maximize their income, uh, clearly in exile, fallen out with the family. So very interesting parallels to the second part. And then he dies in 1972 and she lingers on till 1986. But, you know, the, the, the great thing about the um, the wins is their so-called love story of the century. But in fact, what happened was that he was obsessed with her. She really was basically stuck with him. She married him because he threatened to kill himself. She didn't. And then um, she was stuck with him for the rest of her life. She had affairs as a result of that herself. Um, and she was just there trying to entertain him and keep him quiet. 
What was his king name again? Edward. He was Edward VIII. Edward VIII. So he reigned for 325 days. Oh dear. So 1936 is the year of three kings. So George V, Edward VIII, and George VI. Wow. So who were his parents? Uh, Edward and George VI's parents were Queen King George V and Queen Mary. Queen Mary. Okay. And you said he was involved in the cover-up of a murder in the Bahamas. What was that story? Well, what happened was the richest man in the Bahamas, Harry Oakes, was found dead one morning, um, uh, mysteriously. Um, and um, he'd had basically been, been um, hit, hit on the head, and then he'd someone tried to burn his body. But there were signs it looked like it could have been a voodoo killing, um, all sorts of strange theories. But the man who was there, the next door room, which, who was a very successful businessman called Harold Christie, who everyone suspects did it, um, claimed that he didn't hear a thing. Uh, he was seen in uh, the middle of town, in the middle of the night, when he claimed he was sleeping. But the man who was actually arrested and charged was um, Oates's son-in-law, a man called Alfred de Marigny. And he was basically framed by the Duke because they wanted to protect Christie. And de Marigny, who was a bit of a reprobate, who was um, a womanizer and, and, and rather bolshy, they, they wanted him out of the colony, and this was a good way of doing it. But the death penalty, would have, he would have been killed if he'd been convicted. So um, he, he, he basically framed an innocent man. And one of the problems there was that, um, that uh, the Duke of Windsor and Christie and Oakes were involved in some pretty shady financial dealings. And this was a way of, of sort of covering up what, what was happening there. What goes on in the Bahamas? We've got Epstein, we've got Nygaard, we've got this stuff. A shady place, a sunny place for shady people. <laughs> Have you ever visited? I did. I did my research because um, one of the people who w was very friendly with Matt Batten lived there. Mm. And in fact, I then discovered that she used to play bridge with the Duke of Windsor in the 1960s. Oh, wow. So these are the amazing people who still have this link with the past. With Traitor King, I think I've interviewed about a dozen people who, who knew uh, the Windsors. Uh, and with um, the Mountbatten's, I had about 100 people. So why do they call him the Nazi King? Well, because he, was he, 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 he had Nazi sympathies and he was prepared during wartime to uh, listen to their entreaties to make him a British petter. Could you expand on that a little bit then? Like, what did did he was, well, he, relate, Hitler, was he related to some of the Germans? Yes, he was German. I mean, he was uh, he was German. Fourteen out of sixteen. Was he a Hess? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all all, all related. Fourteen of his sixteen uh, great grandparents, or whatever, were were German. Right. So he spoke German. He'd spent his holidays in Germany. Um, he had uh, this great belief that there should not be another war. So he was a he was defeatist, shall we say? He was an appeaser, really. But um, he was—he felt that the real threat was communism, and that um, we should basically let Hitler deal with the communists and do do a deal with them. That all that would happen would be that we would lose the British Empire, which is sort of what happened. Uh, he was right, but you know, by the time um, and so in the summer of 1940, if you think about it, we were on our knees. Um, we'd had the invasion of France. The, Rus the Germans had. had pushed on for Dunkirk. We only saved, the army was only saved Dunkirk because the Germans stopped uh, and, and stopped the tanks. And one of the reasons I think they stopped the tanks was the peace negotiations were going on at that very time. This was the very moment when the Duke was in the Bahamas being, uh, with the Germans trying to persuade him to, to act as a, as a new king in this, this, this new Britain. 
So what about the theories that he actually gave up information that caused British lives to be lost? Well, I mean, it, it's certainly true that the Germans changed their attack plans um, uh, uh, in 1940. Uh, they came around the side through the Ardennes. Uh, and um, there's some evidence that we've got that the information that came was, was passed to the ambassador in, in The Hague. And the man in The Hague uh, who passed it was a man called Charles Beddow, who's the man who who lent Windsors his his chateau for them to get married in, who was very friendly with the Windsors and was always entertaining them. So the suggestion is that Windsor, whether deliberately or just indiscreetly, passed information to Beddow, who passed it to the Germans. So was the abdication therefore forced upon him for those reasons and the well, the abdication was 1936, um, but I, you know, the abdication, the ostensible reasons w was that, that he couldn't marry a divorced woman as the head of the Church of England. Yeah. He had to choose between his wife or, his, his, or, or, or being king, um, and no one was giving him the chance of a morganatic marriage, which in effect is what he eventually got, because of course she didn't get his title. But you know, there are some suggestions that people were relieved that he in some ways didn't want to be king. Uh, uh, he and and people didn't want him to be king because he because he was going to be d tricky. He he was pro German. He wanted to be more involved in political affairs than a king should be, and so it was a convenient. They used the abdication crisis to basically get rid of him. Who he has, was manoeuvred. Who has the power to abdicate a king? Well, he had to make that choice. Um, but in order to to marry Wallace he would have had to have permission from the Dominions, and the Dominion Prime Ministers were not giving permission. So there would have been this standoff. Um, he, he, he hadn't got permission to marry this woman um, uh, if he wanted to be king, and so he had to make a choice. He couldn't have it both ways. And does Parliament have a role in any of that? Well, Parliament you know, discussed it, um, uh, uh, but in some ways these things were going on. The Church of England was clearly very heavily involved. Um, yeah, they had to be, had to have the support of Parliament as well. Uh, um, he did have support in Parliament. People like Beaverbrook were part of, and Churchill were part of the King's Party, and supported him in a very romantic way. But it just wasn't going to work. It couldn't work, and they couldn't square the circle. And I, I think he's he's on record for many years saying he didn't really want to be king. You know, he was actually quite a lazy person. Uh, he was not a man driven with a great sense of duty. Um, you know, he wanted to have a good time, and uh, this, you know, he didn't want the responsibility. And of course, the great tension in the royal family is between duty and pleasure. It's 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 the theme of the crown, and the tradition of of uh, of duty was George V, and then George VI and the Queen, and that's you know what they want to show public service. Uh, and Edward didn't really have a strong sense of that. You know, he was not very bright. He had a very damaged upbringing, very absent parents, a father who bullied him. Um, and uh, he, it, it, it just didn't interest him. So saying the appeasement thing was quite popular when England was on its knees. Well, you know, the appeasement was the policy, even supported by the royal family up to, to uh, certainly up to 1938. And probably, you know, through '39 as well, there was this great belief that we were not going to have the, you know, another war. Um, and most of the politicians were in favour. 
But I think the, the, the realization grew that you know you couldn't appease a dictator like Churchill, uh, like Hitler. He didn't follow the rules. Uh, and I think you know clearly once war was declared, things changed. I mean, there were peace negotiations that had carried on through the Vatican, through Switzerland, uh, through various intermediaries, um, some through America. But I think the feeling was at that stage that you know we 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 were at war with with Hitler, and the only way to to defeat him was to, was was in war. And what are your thoughts about Churchill? Well, I mean, I think Churchill um, was a very canny politician. I think he allowed some of these peace negotiations to go on just to see how they would run, but distanced himself. He kept his options open. But, you know, he was a very inspirational figure. He was one of the few people who was really fighting um, uh, for, um, uh, you know, defending the country uh, in, in 1940. Um, and though, you know, he drove his generals mad, um, you know, he was uh, a very inspirational figure. Do you think if Russia hadn't got involved, we would have been overrun? Uh, well, uh, certainly, you know, the war was won when Russia came in, in in 41, absolutely. Well, I think America was the was the, the real game changer. I think once we had the resources of America behind us, then it was fine. I think the, the difficult period was, was clearly in that summer of 40 when we were literally alone. Uh, and um, clearly there were defeats up to Alamein. I think the, the line is, this is not the end of the beginning. Sorry, this is not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. I think after Alamein in 42, probably it all changed. But it took time, you know, and it took a lot longer than people thought. You know, people were talking about an invasion of Europe in 43. Well, it didn't come till June 44. And what do you think about the meeting between FDR, Churchill and Stalin and how the world was carved up? Well, you know, Roosevelt was an ill man uh, and Churchill was slightly played by Stalin. Um, you know, difficult with a man like that who doesn't take no for an answer. So, no, of course, a lot of those carve-ups were, were terrible. I mean, the irony is we'd gone to war to save Poland and Poland was one of the greatest victims of the war. Mm. There's just been a, a book uh, that I've agented called Stalin's War by a man called Sean McMeekin, which argues exactly that point, that we should have basically... Um, the, the the real threat was Stalin, uh, and he was the great victor of the war, uh, and uh, you know we should have done some sort of deal with Hitler, um, uh, and it would have saved us you know having Europe under communist rule for for forty years, uh, and all sorts of other things happening. So you know I think the arguments are still being played out. Ching, if Mao and Stalin had have teamed up, we would have been in trouble. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, what was um, so we're on Mountbatten weren't we where have we jumped to now? we've jumped around oh, a bit. we're on, we're on Edward, Edward VIII sorry what was Edward VIII's last years like well I mean he was you know he uh, uh, lived in, in Paris I mean he had he, he had quite a quiet life because um, you know he was not a public figure um, and he played golf and cards and saw friends. Um, never really had a, had had a job since the Bahamas since his since the age of about fifty. So um, uh, you know he led a pretty quiet life. Um, there, there was more of a rapprochement with the royal family. The royal family did come and see him. They sent flowers when he was in hospital. 
but uh, and he came to the unveiling of a memorial to his mother in in, in the fifties. But they, he was still kept very much at arm's length. And he was happy with his wife, was he? It wasn't um, a crazy story like Dickie and Edwina. No, no, I think he loved he loved Wallace. He was a very contented man. He was very happy to give up a throne for her. You know, I think that side of the love story is absolutely right. It's the um, uh, I think it's she that was disaffected and 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 not very fulfilled with the relationship. You know, he was a rather pathetic figure, um, uh, like a sort of you know devout dog, really. Uh, and rather weak character. She bossed him around, which is what he liked. Um, and, um, you know, he was happy, but I think she felt very unfulfilled. Mm. You guys got any more questions? I know James was interested in um, the uh, Russia, Germany, Nazi stuff, weren't you? You got, you covered, it, covered it all? Covered it all? Okay. I'm sorry, we've only been an hour. You want me for two No, hours. no, hour and a half it's been. Has it been an hour and a half? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six. Is it six? It's just gone six. Oh, that's quite an hour and a half. Okay, that's yeah, good. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I want to give you value for money. <laughs> no, no, we're fine. We're fine. Uh, is there anything you would like to say in conclusion then to to the people, um, people who've watched this today? We're going to put all your links in the description box if you want to get your oh, books great. and stuff. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're on Twitter and, and the socials. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I've okay. got a, a website for the agency. There's a website for the Mountbatten book. Um, so what's your agency anything? called again? It's called Andrew Loney Literary Agency, <laughs> amazingly. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I would say is, you know, um, I hope there's some useful information for authors on the agency website. Mm. Uh, always interested to hear from people. I mean, one of the reasons I love talking about the books is you often find that people have some connection with the characters and have some information to give you or stories they've picked up. Uh, I mean, for example, one of the illegitimate children of Edward that I discovered um, came from a guy who heard, I think, possibly here. Uh, and got in touch with me from Australia. Great. Um, so great things come from, from your <laughs> podcast. And you've probably had a lot of great things just coming about in general from your career then. Sounds quite exciting to represent well, it, all those people. It's been very interesting. I meet lots of very yeah. interesting people. I had lunch yesterday with a, a, a pilot of, from um, a Typhoon pilot so uh, who, who fought in, in, in the various wars recently. So you meet all sorts of very interesting people. Um, so yeah, so and it's nice. I've got the nice balance between handling other people's books and then uh, hopefully doing a bit more on my own books. And what's your next book going to be? I haven't got an idea on that no. yet. I haven't <laughs> quite finished The Traitor King, so even though it's coming out in August. But um, always open to ideas. I like books about um, well-known people where there's something new to say and where there has been this double life and there may have been a cover-up of some sort and where I can go probably from that period from sort of 1900 to 1960s where people wrote letters and their files. Uh, it's not all just phone calls and emails. Um, so always open. I, I like doing things, you know, portraits of marriages or uh, slight, what we call slice of life. It doesn't have to be the cradle to the grave. It can be just a bit. Um, comparisons between people, um, two figures um, being compared. So always open to ideas. Um, tend to work on British or American because I don't have the language skills to look at archives in other countries. Yeah, some of those elements are in my new book, which should be out by the time this is published, actually. Who Killed Epstein? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. I think there are plenty of people who, who had a reason. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I have learned so much, Andrew, today. And if you've been watching this and you've enjoyed it, 
please go down and support Andrew on his links. Check out his work, his oeuvre. Is it pronounced oeuvre? And he, are you, did you say you're on Twitter and stuff? Yes, I've got a Twitter account. I've got Facebook um, and an agency account, LinkedIn. Um, so there are lots of different ways to reach me. But I mean, on the agency website, there are phone numbers and emails and um, Amazon. Uh, I've got a, a page for my books. So there are lots of different ways to get in touch. So all those links will be down there in the description box. Let us know in the comments what you thought about today's interview. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the bottom corner of the screen. And huge thanks to John James coming all the way from Essex today with the Dartford um, Bridge bloody closed around the M25, one of those days. Anyway, all right, cheers. Are we going to do an Great. elbow bump? Elbow bump. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it was brilliant. Great. Thanks. Yeah, Great. really good. Oh, good. Yes, yeah, yeah. Please, everyone. Thanks. No, I just. It's going to get a big good reception question. there.